Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Buzz Palmer and Professor Vishal Kushore today to the Menzies Leadership Forum. Buzz and Vishal are the co-founders of the MedTech Actuator. Buzz is Professor of Entrepreneurship at Monash University and Vishal, Professor of Innovation and Public Policy at RMIT. And the MedTech Actuator um, and the Menzies Foundation are working together to support um, science entrepreneurship in Australia uh, and to lock new innovation ways of thinking about how science entrepreneurship can make a difference to health outcomes and also to Australia's economic future. So welcome, Buzz and Vishal. It's wonderful to be with you today. I'd like to perhaps start by asking you to tell me a little bit about the MedTech Actuator and then the fellowship and scholarship program that the Foundation's working with you in regard to. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Liz, and thank you for inviting us to, uh, to have a conversation. Uh, we're thoroughly excited and uh, hopefully this will be uh, interesting and fun and insightful as well. So the Medtech Actuator is a not-for-profit organisation. We were founded just over two and a half years ago as essentially a way to encourage and to facilitate and to catalyse sort of medical innovations within Australia. Uh, we, we saw a significant market gap we saw there's a uh, when as technologies are developed within hospitals and, and universities and medical research institutes, there's, there seems to be no obvious pathway to take a startup commercialising into market. And we were seeing all sorts of failures happen because of a lack of a ecosystem approach to this. And so we facilitated a pretty significant ecosystem full of partners that represent lots of different moments in the journey of commercialization, all the way from service providers in the early stage of the clinical trials, all the way to manufacturers, to distributors, to regulatory consultants, et cetera, as well as investors. And we thought that was a really key part to bring all this together and just to really invite startups to a village of activity, a village of commercialization, and allow them to access it with a, with a sense of simplicity, rather than you know, trying to navigate themselves through a, a forest of the unknown. And uh, that's ultimately, that was the vision. We've, we've done extremely well over these uh, uh, sort of two and a half years. We've sort of 44 active companies now, $29 million worth of capital has gone into these startups as investment. And so the, the, the journeys, the, the model or the vision is certainly proving itself. And it's been uh, hugely exciting. So, um, Vishal, the foundations, one of the ways the foundations is partnering or collaborating with the actuator is in terms of supporting a fellowship and scholarship program. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's meeting a need that you've uncovered in your model and the sort of hopes and aspirations you have for that program? Yeah, absolutely, Liz, and, and so wonderful to be uh, to be with you today. Look, um, one of the things that Buzz and I have really kind of noticed about the Australian uh, kind of innovation scene and particularly the deep technology in the uh, innovation scene that that place where breakthrough science and breakthrough engineering and and really new knowledge uh, that area of new knowledge generation one of the things we really noticed is it's a disconnected system Liz so there are brilliant scientists brilliant clinicians and brilliant researchers uncovering outstanding knowledge and blazing technology and insights but then it sort of languishes trapped 
those, those insights and those new breakthroughs remain sort of trapped in the research space or in the academic space. And so um, through some beautiful conversations with you, uh, Liz, and with others, we started to realize, well, how do we tempt scientists and, and researchers um, and indeed those sort of those who are involved at the, the intersection of practice? How do we tempt them into other ways of exploring impact? How do we encourage them to think that their idea, their technology can have an effect in the world in real clinical contexts, in real patients' lives, in a way that doesn't involve just publishing the next science journal article or the next nature piece? So this, uh, these series of interventions that we've designed together with uh, the Menzies Foundation are really aimed to create new pathways and new vistas of opportunity for some of our leading uh, research, intellectual and clinical minds and help to expose them to this other domain of making impact, this domain of entrepreneurship, this domain of ventures, this domain of spinning out and using the kind of the startup method as a way of creating both healthcare impact and economic impact at the same time. It's a very interesting moment in time. Sort of the COVID normal world is creating a new imperative around the importance of Australian enterprise and how to develop and support Australian enterprise. Why is science entrepreneurship so important for Australia? What's your vision for what science entrepreneurship or unlocking innovation through science entrepreneurship can offer Australia as a country? You know, the, the reality is, Liz, that, you know, Australia really punches above its weight in terms of its research capability and some of the inventions and knowledge that contributes to the global sort of library, if you will. But, I mean, all we've got to do is think of things like Gardasil. You know, Gardasil is a technology against human papillomavirus for cervical cancer within a university spun out by a, an incredible professor engaged in science entrepreneurship and has gone on to allow the, the, the saving of lives all around the world. Now, if that's not a good enough reason as to why we should encourage science entrepreneurship, I can't think of anything else. You've only got to look at things like Wi-Fi, IVF, uh, the heart pacemaker. These are technologies that have gone on to save and enable lives all around the world and they've all come from universities and they've all come from scientists that have wanted to achieve something significant. Cochlear, Graham Clark. I think what we've seen in the last 20 years is a bit of a sort of a stalemate, a stalling of this uh, in some ways. And I think part of it is, you know, going to Vishal's point, we've just got to absolutely enable these scientists to understand how they take these ideas, this research they've been working with, what options do they have to be able to get this out into the greater world, to get to drive significant impact to patients uh, and, and to, the, and to the, the greater humanity. And I think that's, the, that's ultimately uh, the reason around science entrepreneurship, Michelle. Yeah, and I think, as you say, Buzz, uh, Australia does so well in terms of basic research. We invest so much money in, term, in, in a series of different public research schemes. The question is, how do we extract healthcare value from that investment and how do we extract economic value from that? How do we change people's um, uh, experience of health and how do we create value for the broader economy and dynamism in the broader economy? If we can solve that, we will create a, an economic future for Australia and a healthcare innovation node for the world that we will all sit back at and say, well, now that was a good way to spend our life. That was a good way. Um, to rewire an economy. That was a great way to respond to the challenges of, of, of yesterday and of today and indeed of tomorrow. And so I think, Liz, for us, 
the possibility of science entrepreneurship is nothing less than the re rewiring of the Australian economy, the placing it on the next growth curve and in a peer of players globally, uh, which would be outstanding. And crucially, to find new and exciting ways to create real healthcare impact. And, and, and just to add to that, I mean, in, in the current environment with COVID, you know, if we didn't have science entrepreneurship, we wouldn't have two leading potential vaccines coming out of Australia. And, and we've got to remember that, that vaccines are the single most effective human intervention when it comes to medicine we've ever um, sort of seen. And so, you know, this just goes to show that science entrepreneurship has a genuine impact on humanity. So, so Basin Fischer, what's really interesting is, you know, there's been, I mean, science entrepreneurship isn't a new concept. No. Universities have gone to great lengths to develop entrepreneurial pathways, research institutes, have licensing and other arrangements. But, and my sense of the MedTech Actuator is that you're really focused on those that want to spin out. Do you know what I mean? Those that want to create enterprises in themselves. So I'm just really interested in your insights about why those other more traditional pathways of science entrepreneurship are not necessarily leading to the accelerated opportunities that you both just so clearly articulated. What are the really significant impediments and barriers that scientists face in the more traditional you know, research contexts that you're seeking to address? It's, it's, a, it's such a good question, Liz. I mean, I th and I think that Buzz and I have, have kind of thought about this, we've written about this, and, and we speak regularly about this, and you're totally right, the MedTech Actuator is our attempt to design a practical solution to some of these problems. Just some of the problems are, for example, the way that we structure our academic career pathways encourage people to focus on certain things rather than other things. So they focus on publications often for advancement rather than IP generation, patents or spin outs. A really obvious difference between that and somewhere else is the United States does that quite differently, particularly some of the great um, spin out universities like MIT and Stanford and so forth. So there's something about the way we structure our academic and our research pathways. And there's something about that, uh, and that goes the whole uh, way, Liz. It's, it's not only how we structure advancement when we're in, but it's also how we structure education, both in the early stages. Uh, like we, we teach great scientists to want to become academic scientists. Um, we, we teach them to want, and it's totally right that we do, we teach them to want the, the next Nobel Prize, the next, the, uh, you know, come up with the, with the next earth-shattering paper, but we, we often don't teach them. We don't have the same kind of culture of pursuing impact in different kinds of ways. And I think we're getting to the end of that as a model, basically, because of report after report, Liz, uh, is telling us that we're producing so many higher degree uh, graduates and we don't have enough academic jobs for them. So there's a necessity for us to look for different ways of seeking impact for those for those highly educated, unbelievably skilled and very motivated people. There's also stuff going on in the broader sector, Liz. So we say, Buzz and I particularly say, that one of the things that thwarts a lot of good science entrepreneurship is system fragmentation. So academics and research don't speak as well and as tightly and as cleanly as they might with venture capital. They don't speak, you know, they don't speak so well with product development firms. Um, our regulatory specialists are really wonderful, and they, but they don't have a productive dialogue with some of our breakthrough engineers. And so there's something about curating spaces and curating communities and drawing people together so that we can bring, as Buzz 
says, the village towards an I, a bright idea. Science is one part of it, but you surround a great scientist with a great business person, with an unbelievable designer, with excellent regulatory specialists, and dare I say, lawyers. Um, and, and then you're really cooking with gas. Now you're, or you're, now you're cooking with the solar, gener- the, the solar powered induction plate. So it's really, um, there's something about defragmenting the system that's super important. And the very last thought I would just offer, Liz, is that there's something about how we think about capital here that, that actually requires a little bit of, uh, of kind of thinking. There is a gap for those early stage science entrepreneurs seeking to make their way out of the academic space. Uh, we, we know how to fund basic research really, really well. We're getting a little bit better at tra- funding translational research. We don't know how to take that research and fund the very, very early stages of its commercialization. We do a little bit better later on, um, but there's, there are a couple of uh, what, what you may, what you know, I know Liz know well as the valleys of death. And there are a couple of them that we talk a lot about. Um, but one of them absolutely is a, is a real stumbling block for, for early stage science entrepreneurs. Yeah, sure. I think it's also important to give science entrepreneurs or at least research options and let them understand what the options look like. We've, we've gone into a, a mode now where I think we've essentially got an SOP for how do we get technology to market within universities. And it kind of follows the biotech and pharma model of let's just license this out. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit less risky. The model kind of exists. We have all the templates in place. We can get a return relatively quickly, although minimal. And therefore it goes to Vishal's point, what are we trying to create here? Dividends of healthcare or dividends of the economy? And actually that model doesn't necessarily create any of those uh, for Australia. Uh, and I think if you're able to, to give scientists and early stage researchers options about what translation and what commercialization might look like for their product, that allows them to be more informed about how they might be able to maneuver their way around this and not just take the traditional licensing route, which by the way, works with some technologies, absolutely, but not with 95% of them. You've got to have a little bit of a more broader uh, sort of portfolio approach to uh, to commercialization than just the licensing. So if you could just give us a couple of examples from the MedTech Actuator that, I mean, you alluded before to some of the great outcomes that you've had through the Actuator. Can you illustrate the sort of thing you're talking about in terms of a couple of examples that have, you know, you've developed over the last couple of years that give people a sense of why this is an alternative pathway and the credibility and the importance of it? We've got 44 examples that we can talk about. Well, but if we could choose, not choose all a, of them, but look, I think there is there is some common things. That, you know, there's there's things we, we seem to have quite a high pediatric sort of push within the medical actuator. There seems to be a, a a lot of activity around that uh, within Australia, uh, and that's that's really exciting. But perhaps one really key example is there's. You know, there's a technology, and I won't name names, but there's a technology that came out of a university, and the university was just extremely keen on licensing this, which meant that, you know, that's great. It would have gone offshore. It would have gone off to a European country. They would have commercialized it. It would have been available in 10 other nations before it came to Australia, and we're usually 10th or 12th on the list of countries that people... So also, we've invented something, but we don't see... The, uh, the efforts of that until 10 years later. And I just don't think that's a, a nice model to work with when, when we've put all this research and all this investment into trying to create innovation, and yet we don't reap those rewards. And so actually one of the startups that we're talking about has actually been able to develop a sensor technology which can actually be manufactured here, which can actually go around the world as a distribution model. So you're creating uh, jobs, you're creating economic returns, you're creating, so these are biosensors, creating direct and media opportunities for Australians first, as well as the rest of the world. And we think that's important. If you're going to invest in research in this country, at least you've got to reap the dividends in some 
form rather than just have an institute reap some royalty dividends in a you know, kind of a, a longer period of time. And we think it's a little bit of, and this is what we would consider an impactful result. Michelle? Totally, and I, and I think Liz, to you know, to to go further with your question, I think you know, we some of the startups that we've got, we've got fantastic fantastic teams that have miniaturized sensors in all kinds of ways that can go into the heart, can go into the brain. We've got technologies that are basically small patches that can be worn that essentially are a lab, a laboratory on a patch, constantly feeding data about you know, sugar levels for diabetes or diet for and nutrition for elite athletes, for example. We've got, uh, we've got fantastic, as Buzz said, we've got that wonderful kind of prenatal and neonatal uh, diagnostics uh, to make birth uh, safer. And actually we've, I mean, we've got the, um, we've also got, um, we've got a biologic that yeah. could conceivably be, that, 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 that's been worked up to be put on a mask that can actually not only be 100% effective, we hope, against COVID-19, but it can also detect COVID-19 versus other things and let you know what's in the air. So fantastic real science, real like Star Trek stuff. And um, I think one of the other things that I think is really interesting is alongside these kind of deep science entrepreneurs, uh, Liz, we've also got you know, paramedics who have seen people die on the side of the road because of meds, mal mal you know, wrong, wrong amounts of medications being injected. And they've come up with engineering solutions to sort that problem out. And when you put the deep scientists with real practitioners and, you know, interesting business players and entrepreneurial mindsets, and when you put them all together, really amazing things happen. So there is, um, there is something unbelievable about the, co the cohort dynamics that can also that can also happen. So everybody, all, all the boats get to rise. So you established the, um, the actuator two and a half years ago. You've built a pipeline. You have a number, just by your exuberance alone underscores the excitement of the sorts of things that you're seeing happening in the actuator. What's next on the agenda? Like how do you take what you're doing and how do you build an incubator, test the premise, demonstrate the veracity of it in the way you are, What's the scale play? Yeah, fantastic. Liz, I think what, um, the first thing to note is that, so we've already, like exactly as you say, we started off two and a half years ago and, and we're so happy and so lucky and, and so grateful to, to all of our partners and all of our dear friends who have helped us to kind of really accelerate fast and do something that we think is kind of not, not been done in Australia before. Um, but actually, uh, so we've expanded already um, to cover uh, kind of biotechnology, uh, deep kind of deep uh, deep digital technology of particular kinds as well, deep health tech initiatives. But then we've also um, expanded in really exciting ways into Asia Pacific. So part of what we think is so interesting and so important, Liz, is that we are getting dragged by our partners who include Johnson & Johnson and Medtronic. They include Ernst & Young and a, a series of you know, Boston Scientific and a range of other clinical and other players. Um, and we're being encouraged to look at the Asia Pacific opportunity, not just the Australian opportunity. And so part of what we think, uh, uh, Liz, is that there's a real, there is an unbelievable scale opportunity through, Asia, through the Asia Pacific. Our current cohort of companies includes companies from Australia, from Singapore, from India, from Indonesia. Where, and so what, what we're able to do, and this is quite contrary to what a lot of other accelerator or catalyst models do when they go overseas, we're not looking to just purely hoover up 
all of those companies and bring them back to Australia. Part of what we say is if we take a system approach, if we take a network approach, if we build nodes in multiple places, then you'll get a really beautiful cross-fertilization of ideas, of technologies, of the syst of system capability. And so we've uh, got an office now in Singapore where we're running, we've run programs in Japan, in India, and in South Korea. Um, and uh, we're looking to do more in Vietnam next year. So I think the first answer is, uh, Liz, this is kind of our opportunity to kind of take this um, Australian innovation to, to the region and have a, an unbelievable node right here in our, in our backyard that really catalyzes global health transformation. That's one thing. I think we're also really excited about the um, part of what we've been discovering more and more is, is interesting ways to think about smoothing and catalyzing the pathway for these deep technology and science-based uh, interventions. And we're, we're actively exploring different kinds of capital models and, and different sorts of partnerships with everybody from philanthropic players like yourself Menz, uh, and Menzies Foundation, but governments and a range of other players, venture capital, um, to think about how do we smooth, augment, and really make more impactful the capital side of this game. So in a sense, scaling geographically and, and deepening at the level of capital are things that we're really seeing really strongly on our agenda right now. You think I basically got it right? Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right. And I think Australia is absolutely well positioned as well in many ways to be able to take this sort of lead in the region. Uh, it'd be great to have more innovations coming out, which is part of the promotion of the science entrepreneur uh, concept. And I think, you know, we, we can lead by example as well. And hopefully that will drive another wave of opportunity from the sort of the, the publicly funded uh, research organizations uh, here in Australia. So is this this notion of an interconnected world in terms of discovery, markets, access to capital? Is that sort of, I mean, so much of science entrepreneurship, or sorry, so much of entrepreneurship in Australia has a very Australian focus. And the part that's, uh, my observation is particularly the parts that's missing is access to global markets and to resources and to all those sorts of things. Are you saying that you're building this networked model as a way of leveraging into the sort of global platforms that are available to support innovation? Yeah, Liz, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, we've um, we've got uh, deep connections into the United States uh, markets and the European markets as well. In, <laughs> hilariously, also increasingly, we think the the Middle Eastern markets in different ways. Um, part of, uh, but we think basically, uh, Liz, it's totally right that in a sense we kind of get flogged between two poles in Australia. On the one pole, uh, it says um, any entrepreneur who wants to do anything big needs to go offshore. That's one extreme. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, uh, the other extreme is the only kind of entrepreneurial success is local entrepreneurial success. And I think actually part of what we're saying is that both poles of that are, are, not, are kind of missing something really important. That is, if you build a network of access, of, of value, of fertilization, we will, we in Australia will do more than our fair share. We'll, you know, we'll be an important node in a global network and a global community. And we'll, we can get past this kind of, it has to be here or it has to be offshore. No, no, beautiful um, feedback effects, people going, coming, uh, utilizing, for example, you know, clinical trials in one place, um, advanced manufacturing here in Melbourne, uh, you know, market access in, in uh, you know, at the Mayo Clinic, you know, these are the sorts of international global stories that we hope that will be the tales of science entrepreneurship into the future. So one of the, um, you know, as part of this 
developing developing our collaboration and working out how we can work together to build and support these platform this platform that you're talking about now one of the things that, and you've raised it before is this focus and interest in capital so one of the key areas that the Menzies Foundation's due diligence in this area shown you know, there's this sort of, as you described it before, Vishal, this valley of death from people leaving sort of tenured research positions and moving into um, entrepreneurial opportunities. I'm just wondering if you could just just talk a little bit about this whole situation with capital and new ways of thinking and working around capital. So, you know, the VC market is reasonably sophisticated, but companies have to be at a certain level of development to offer certain metrics that convince VCs that they're worthy of going. There's a huge runway that leads to that. How might we rethink the way capital, philanthropic capital, impact investment capital, capital generally, government support might unlock those sorts of um, opportunities for earlier stage support that allows or scientists, give scientists the runway to build the sorts of um, opportunities that you're talking about? Lizia, I mean, it's 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 so right. Um, I think a couple of uh, a couple of quick thoughts. One is everybody wants the harvest, Liz. You know, everybody wants the beautiful shiny apple. This is my fa- this is Buzz's favorite story of mine that I tell. Um, basically, everybody wants the harvest. They want beautiful orchards of apples. You know, you know, weighed down by fruits. And I think um, actually. And, and in, in, in our space, that is kind of the scaling, you know, Series A plus opportunities for developed, de-risked, scaling technologies. Everybody wants that. We want them economically. We want them from a public policy point of view. We want them from an investment opportunity point of view. We want them from a healthcare point of view. But in order to get that, Liz, as you well, as you know so well, we have to do a lot. Uh, we need to, in order to get those fruits, we need to first find a beautiful piece of land, a field. We need to get rid of the roots and the weeds. And we need to till that earth and we need to kind of, we need to put some, you know, dynamic lifter or some, 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 some we have to put a lot of manure. We have to put a lot of shit on it um, <laughs> until it starts. Yeah, um, and we've got to prime it in a particular way. Then and only then do we seed stuff. We protect those seeds so that they don't get eaten or blown away or whatever have you. And then after lots of water, lots of care, lots of attention, then we start getting trees that can give us some fruit. And I think actually, this is not a terrible metaphor for what we need when it comes to thinking about the early stage in respect of of, of deep technology entrepreneurship and science and science-driven ventures. So I think, and I think you're one of the conversations, Liz, that that as you know, we're involved with you and, and you brought some Um, really helpful perspectives is this operates at multiple levels. It operates at the level of a venture. You know, how does an idea or a venture get enough kind of capital when they don't have much to show to kind of take the first few steps? And there's there's also how do they there's also a separate question of how do they attract the kinds of i the, the kinds of the kinds of expertise and insight that they need to traverse those early stages, and I think there's also a question of how do individual players individual human beings how do they feel okay about some of the choices that they might need to need to make to step away from really defined pathways and to explore and experiment in a different kind of way so the kinds of interventions that we think have a lot of um, possibility are totally the kinds of things that we're that, that the medtech actuator and menzies are working together on fellowships fellowship and scholarship programs to expose really great um, established and emerging scientists 
to the this goal of entrepreneurship and commercialization. We also think things like technology voucher programs that can be used to develop early ideas through vouchers that help players to attract the right kinds of experts, the right kinds of expertise, um, et cetera. And we also think that non-dilutive grants at the early, the, the very, very early stage, as they use in the United States, as they use to some extent um, in Israel, for, um, to help kickstart the journey for these deep science ventures. All of these things are things we need to think really, really carefully about, Liz, and, and we're so delighted to be thinking with you about some of those things. I think that, but just to add to that, I think, you know, it, it's one thing just, to, and, and there's actually there's probably two things. The first thing is that there's a, there's absolutely a lack of understanding of how this sort of market works when you're early in the sort of research space as well. And so I, I constantly hear researchers say, oh, VCs have no idea. They don't know what the market needs. And actually, the truth is you've misunderstood actually what the VC mechanism is. And the second thing is, if you're going to intervene nice and early, you can't just do it with cash. There has to be education there as well. There has to be some kind of service. There has to be some kind of institutes the wrong word, but there has to be this kind of ecosystem support because, you know, as, as we know, this translation, this entrepreneurship, this commercialization process is complex and you need to be guided through it by those that know the system. And so that's, that was cash in the, and, and support. In the interviews that you and I did the other day for the fellowship programs, we saw six extraordinary scientists with so bright, such amazing platforms to make a real difference for health in this country from everything from working with babies to supporting surgeons to operate to all sorts of things but the one thing that was absolutely apparent buzz was what an enormous step it was from the bench into the commercial opportunities and that the sorts of business acumen and other things that you just talked about are just not something that are factored into the way that a scientist develops their insights or the way that they, you know, that they think and work in the world, that there needs to be some mechanism that combines purpose and impact to drive those opportunities forward. I mean, I, I was so taken by our conversation, so impressed by the brilliance and the science, but also so aware of the real steps to change that into something that became investable. Liz, it's so, like, such a great point. And, and I think also, I, I, Buzz, you, you're totally right. I completely agree that it's not just cash. It's also the case that the problems are not just capital problems. Sometimes problems of a lack of commercial acumen or a lack of, uh, you know, kind of technology development show themselves as capital problems, but they're actually not capital problems. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right that taking that step is is such a such a tricky thing we don't train people for that um, and not everybody need, not every scientist needs to know how to commercialize but i think liz and this is something we've spoken about before entrepreneurship or commercialization sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap in the kind of the in the pure academic space it's imagined that there's something a little bit Grubby. Almost grubby, <laughs> almost something a little bit grubby. Um, that it's about it's a, that it's about making a lot of money. That it's about selling out in some sense. So it's no longer about the ideas. Now it's about the Aston Martins or something like that. And actually, um, Liz, I think actually one of the things that Buzz and I are both kind of obsessive about is it's actually not about that at all. It's about impact, commercialization of breakthrough science in health and for us is about how do you let these, this brilliant science 
actually have a place in the world, actually make an effect in the world. Um, and actually, of the, the startup players that we know who are in our, in our cohorts and our dear friends across the system, um, health entrepreneurs are really, really interesting, and particularly health science entrepreneurs are really interesting. They, sure, they want to do well. They, want to, they, they don't want to waste their time. They don't want to waste their money. They don't want to waste years of their lives. But they care about health first. They care about impact first. The money may come, and, and, and actually, our, our hypothesis and, and what we've seen time and time again is if you focus on the impact, the money takes care of itself. It's not grubby. It's about impact. Um, and as, as um, a great philosopher that I love uh, always says, you know, action in the world can be, uh, you, know, can, you know, no one has completely clean hands. But actually, it's, just, it's a matter of us reorientating kind of what we're thinking about a little bit. If we want impact, we've got to engage in the world. And if we engage in the world, we need to use the structures that are there. We need to figure out how to work the structures that are there. Some of those things relate to capital, commercialization, and money. But without those structures, there is very much massively reduced impact. So it's a lovely segue into my final question. And that is, you know, the Menzies Foundation works in leadership challenges. And one of the things that we're seeing that's emerging across all of those challenges is this profound importance of entrepreneurship, of having an entrepreneurial disposition, of being able to work in a complex world where adaption, high propensity for risk, and these other sorts of qualities are becoming key and important leadership attributes for anybody, at, you know, working at any time or place in Australia. And I'm just wondering if you can just spend a few seconds before we finish talking about the sorts of attributes that you think entrepreneurs or the entrepreneurs that you're working with that you see are important in terms of them, you know, creating this new leadership role in Australia and in the world. What, what's your views on, the, on entrepreneurship and where it's, you know, its relevance and importance more broadly? Um, Liz, I'm, I'm one of these road to Damascus people when it comes to entrepreneurship. So, uh, you know, uh, many years ago, I used to think, you know, people would say a lot to me about uh, entrepreneurship and startup. I did my graduate work in, in Boston, um, in the Cambridge system, and everybody was kind of obsessive about um, startups and ventures and entrepreneurship and, and so forth, even back then, Liz, even back then. But one of the, uh, but I, w I used to have this idea that this kind of obsession with entrepreneurship would drive me a bit mad. But actually, I, I very much, like now I find myself constantly in all kinds of forums, be they public policy forums, academic forums, I'm kind of calling from an on for an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, in a sense, this idea of seizing the initiative to move into a new space, for me, is the essence of entrepreneurship. It is opening a new space, seeing it a little bit early, perhaps, you know, identifying it, and then moving really fast to capture it and to seize that opportunity. And I think that's fundamental to what we need in a broader sense, across so many different parts of our economy and society. I think, our, uh, I think our universities need to be able to do that. I think our governments need to be able to do that. And I think this idea of seeking opportunities, new and emerging opportunities, and mobilizing around them fast is really the most important thing to do in times of uncertainty and in times of change. And the other thing that the entrepreneur is really, really very good at, Liz, is learning. They are very good at iterating testing, figuring out what works, and then moving to the next thing if, if this doesn't work or doubling down on the thing that works. So learning our way forward is something that entrepreneurs do really well. And I think, again, is an attribute of fantastic leadership. 
the last thing I will say is that there is a cautionary thing that I would say about entrepreneurship. And that is, Liz, you asked a little while ago, what, what are our reflections on, on leadership? And I think actually, for, for Buzz and me, for both of us, the really the, the heart of entrepreneur, the heart of leadership is self-understanding. Um, it, it's self-understanding um, it is so important to not only making sure that we're setting directions driven by the right things, by what's important, not by emotion. Uh, it helps us to lead and develop teams in very different kinds of ways. It come, it, we, uh, self-understanding ourselves mean that we can manage a system in a radically different way. There is a risk in entrepreneurship, particularly in the new craze of entrepreneurship, that actually um, entrepreneurship or leadership in, in the entrepreneurial space is often imagined to be a bit about self-promotion. So whereas self-promotion breeds, has the risk of breeding hubris, um, self-understanding breeds humility. And I think this is actually, if we can find a way to curate leadership that draws on the very best of entrepreneurship, but with a strong dose of humility and self-understanding, I think we will build a cadre of leaders that will lead us to a much brighter and more exciting future. Yeah, so nicely put, Vishal. I think that's an excellent insight. I think entrepreneurship is thrown out as a, you know, as a word that we all should have that innate ability to say, but I think it is in the combination of those two things. Very, You need a little bit of hubris to forge through to what's possible and new, but a lot of humility in terms of how you then go on the journey, I think. I couldn't agree with you more. Buzz, as the professor of entrepreneurship, have you got anything else you'd like to add? Well, I will say is that, you know, the it's a completely different space. It, it becomes a lifestyle change, uh, entrepreneurship as well. And, you know, if you're not driven by the concept, if you don't have the passion behind it, and if you're focused on the wrong things, then you're more likely to fail. Uh, and I think being able to be open, being coachable, understanding where your flaws are or where your skill sets don't fit, I think is really, really important. Uh, because as, as Michelle Sala mentioned, this, this ego approach is not going to get you anywhere. You have to understand that it's a systems approach and you can be sort of greedy about how to achieve what you want to achieve. And so I think having the right vision, having the right direction, having the right purpose uh, and being open to change and also being open to failure is, is hugely important because it, it's not a day job. So can I just thank you both so much for what I think what's been a really interesting and insightful conversation. I have to say, you know, Buzz, what really struck me when I thought about the interviews that I've mentioned before that we did the other day was just the profound sense of purpose that the people who were seeking support through the fellowships had their absolute fervent desire to translate what they knew into better outcomes for the people in Australia and in the world. And I have to say, uh, the Menzies Foundation is delighted to be partnering with MedTech Actuator and with the two of you as we really seek to work to work out how we unlock the more of those opportunities and build innovation runways that ensures that those people have great chance of success. So thank you both very much. We'll look forward to the next instalment.